This is Free Thoughts. I'm Aaron Powell. And I'm Trevor Burris. Our guest today is Justin Logan. He's a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, and today we're talking with him about the problems with Washington's foreign policy establishment. Welcome back to Free Thoughts, Justin. Thanks so much. I think he was on the 53rd episode, if I remember correctly. It's been a, took a little bit of a hiatus, but yeah, yeah, we're at over 350 now, so welcome back. Who is the foreign policy establishment? Well, it's a term of art and, and one that I think is unavoidable, though. Um, ben Rhodes, the deputy national security advisor to President Obama, famously used the term the blob uh, to describe the foreign policy establishment. But the way I use it is the sort of great breadth of the foreign policy debate where there's a tremendous amount of agreement, right? So if you look at abortion or the environment or tax policy, it's a pretty serious debate between, you know, on the one hand, conservatives and on the other hand, liberals. But if you look at for the foreign policy debate, there's a lot of hue and cry. There's a lot of uh, epithets that get passed back and forth. Um, but one of the things that that raised this puzzle for me was I, as a sometime passer through of academia, there's a real serious debate about American foreign policy in academia that in many ways is much broader than the debate in Washington, D.C., and one of the most prominent and I think intelligent and hard to deal with critics of my own views, William Woolforth, mentioned that, you know, he he even thought that the debate in Washington was sort of pinched and that having a serious broad debate about grand strategy and foreign policy was important. And so that raised this puzzle, right? You have a lot of people in Washington, D.C., think tanks that have advanced degrees from top schools. And in the academy, you have people who have advanced degrees from top schools. And why doesn't the debate in Washington look like the debate in the academy? That seems odd because when we look around as you know, voters watching presidential debates, they talk about – the candidates talk about foreign policy all the time. We're, we're always hearing criticisms of the president entering this war or pulling out of that war. Like It seems like there's a debate. Happening, and it makes the it certainly makes the news. So, what's what's going on there? What's the disconnect? Well, in the last presidential debate, there was almost no mention of uh, foreign policy at all. The last presidential campaign, I should say, remember there was some tension between the Trump camp and the uh, the Biden camp about whether there would be a, a single debate dedicated to foreign policy entirely. And I think there's this article that Ben Friedman and I, our former colleague, wrote called "The Operational Mindset," that points to there is debate about American grand strategy and about American foreign policy, but it's conducted in a very narrow breadth. That is to say, you know, if you look at the debate about the entering the Iraq war, for example, there really wasn't a discussion about whether we should start the war. There was a question about uh, whether we had gone as, as, as far as we could at the United Nations, whether we should do more to stroke our allies, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But at these broad levels of abstraction, what kinds of problems in international politics should the United States care about, for example? There's a really broad consensus, whether you're at AEI, the Brookings Institution, CSIS, or the Heritage Foundation. And that was the sort of central animating puzzle. So I, I find that there is debate, but it's on these more sort of tactical and operational issues that are beneath broad principles. Now, as you mentioned, these these big players, and of course, if you look at the broad foreign policy community, and I and and you know this includes depart, State Department, so ambassadors, like all the all the people. If America is not forward deployed, and we have you know more we're more retrenched in in our 
dalliances overseas, then there's a lot of people who could lose their jobs. And in you know, one level, you could just say these are just the people who are self-interested. And then the people who go to the holding tanks to wait for those jobs when the administration switches, that they, this large set of jobs that exist because of the nature of our foreign policy. Does that have anything to do with it? I think it has something to do with it. I don't want to make an argument that, you know, the debate is structured the way it is because everyone is this sort of self-seeking, crude Marxist caricature uh, necessarily. Although I do think that money matters, right? And so it's not to say that uh, we have the debate that money has purchased, but we hear the views that we hear because someone pays salaries, right? Um, so there may be, you could envision any subject, not foreign policy, but any subject and a variety of views about its importance or what to do on the public policy issue involved. But if there's a particular point of view that has no interested parties or no ideological donors that fund that view, you're less likely to hear that view. So I do think like in a very elemental way, it's pretty hard to say that the array of donors to foreign policy think tanks, funders of foreign policy think tanks don't have some influence over the process. But there are a number of other things going on. There's sort of ambition, right? So think tanks get notoriety on the basis of sort of policy relevance, right? Be appearing close to the exercise of power. And power wants certain views, right? Like the presidents and secretaries of state and defense have their own views, and that's understandable and as it should be. But what rarely happens is those individuals bring in people who disagree with them to explain to them why their views are wrong. And so the sort of self-seeking analyst that says, I'd like to be a deputy assistant secretary of defense someday, finds himself or herself to gravitate toward the sort of views that are conducive to that. So there's a sort of career ambition that goes on there. And then there's just also a sort of socialization, right? Like it's a peculiar sort of person, and I can say this because I am one, uh, who selects into the foreign policy studies department at the Cato Institute. You know, I sometimes joke that I didn't come to Washington to make friends, and so far that's going pretty well. But someone who styles himself or herself as a sort of slayer of great sacred cows is not likely to sort of ascend to the commanding heights of the foreign policy establishment. So money plays a role, but sort of socialization, ambition, and the the desire to appear relevant to donors and other audiences is sort of how individuals in the foreign policy establishment and institutions there uh, get esteemed. We've mentioned a handful of these, but maybe before continuing the conversation, it might be helpful for you to give us kind of a broad topology or maybe ecology of the foreign policy debate and its players. So who are the, you know, if let's say if I want to be a part of the foreign policy debate, what are my options? Who are the major players and how do decisions get filtered up through them and get made? The latter part of the question is harder and more involved to answer than the former. So from the point of view of the sort of ecosystem of sort of foreign policy ideas. Obviously, there are think tanks. Um, there are also journalists, opinion and otherwise. Um, there are lobbyists. There are for various weapons producers, um, for various consultancies that get overseas contracts through the State Department, the intelligence community or the Defense Department. And there's a lot of cross-pollination between those organizations. So, But I think that if you want to be relevant to 
policy relevant to power, what you want to do is figure out the terrain on which you're navigating, right? So like what, imagine the the sort of, if you want to use left and right, the furthest left Democrat and the furthest right Republican, that's the sort of relevant spectrum of opinion that you want to evaluate. Well, as we've learned, sometimes bipart- very bipartisan policy initiatives are dramatically flawed, <laughs> tragically flawed. And so there are a lot of people who don't enter these intellectual exercises saying, what are Republicans saying and what are Democrats saying and where do I lie on this continuum? Rather, they say, what is the sort of order of battle? What do we know about international politics in terms of what sorts of problems the United States ought to care about? Um, what sorts of solutions work to deal with those problems? What sorts of problems exist but may be best ignored? And so those sort of sort of starting from a sort of tabula rasa point of view is something that from a career perspective in Washington, you probably shouldn't do. Um, and I would leave to others whether that's true on issues other than foreign policy. But I think if you want to be relevant to policy, you want to offer answers not about whether the United States should invade Iraq or not, or things of that nature, and rather what's going on in Anbar province, who's who, who you think the crucial players are, and which screws need to be turned to get him to do what it is that you want to do. And just selfishly, those those questions, I think, don't interest me terribly much at the sort of granular level. But also, I think that there are big, you know, <laughs> essential problems uh, with American foreign policy that cry out for scrutiny. And I think it's a great testament to Cato that, you know, before my professional life through hopefully much after my professional life, Cato has really been a repository of correct answers to important questions that don't get asked in Washington. A while back, about a year ago, we had Stephen Kinzer on to discuss his great book, The True Flag, which, of which the focus of that book is the significant debate that happened about our involvement in the Philippines during the Spanish-American War. And then we have the League of Nations and the Senate not ratifying that treaty. And then we have post-war era. And that seems like after that, it becomes agreed upon. Like We don't have debates anymore about whether or not we should be the biggest, because post-war we have the Soviet Union. And then we have post-Soviet Union. So I mean, that's sort of my, you know, back of the envelope history of this debate. But does it mean, is, is, has it kind of moved in a direction where they all kind of coalesce to this point that the, we, everyone agrees that America has to be the most important player in the foreign policy realm, like, and that that primacy view is not even challenged. But but it didn't always be that way. I mean, I think 1947 is a is a is a point where you could pretty easily say that the die was cast. You know, for very reasonable, understandable concerns, uh, you had a Soviet Union that really did menace a devastated European continent, and there. But even at that juncture, there was a debate, right? I mean, there really was. There were Taft Republicans. There were others who said, "Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Do we really really want to be on the hook for defense of the for the defense of Germany forever? Is that something that?" That we want to do. You heard Eisenhower in the 1950s saying, if NATO lasts more than 10 years, we should judge it as having failed. And then really the end of the Cold War is, you know, for a crotchety realist like me, just the constraints are loose, right? You know, in my view, structural pressures push on countries, right? Like small, weak countries don't invade big, powerful ones for a reason, because that's sort of a dumb thing to do. But when you're the United States and you're looking at 35 
to 40% of world GDP, no conceivable what's called peer competitor to the United States in the 1990s and the early 2000s. It really is conducive to a view that says the world is your oyster and, and, and imagination is really the limit of what, what you can come up with in terms of foreign policy. So we heard all of these arguments in the 90s and the aughts about this permissive set of conditions facing the United States. And why shouldn't we spread the advance of freedom across the Middle East or what have you? And, you know, there were lots of people in the academy and a few people in the Beltway that were saying, well, <laughs> there are important distinctions about how the world works that you're failing to draw here. But it was sort of understandable for somebody like me, although frustrating, that the view that the world was really our oyster and we should just let it, let it know we mean business and and try to do good in it won the day. And, you know, I think as we go into the 2020s and the 2030s, as resource constraints become somewhat more tight, I think as if China continues to become wealthier, those constraints, international and domestic, will start to pinch defense budgets. And people will start to say, is Aunt Sally's Medicare more important than the marginal F-35? And and, and those sorts of trade-offs will re-enter. But we were really pushing on an open door for 20 plus years there. And that led to a lot of mischief and mayhem. You referred to yourself as a realist. And the the theory of foreign policy that you just talked about as the dominant one, you're called primacy. Can you flesh out a bit more about what realism is and maybe also just what the major kind of grand strategy or, or grand theories of foreign policy are that we might be debating? If anybody's still awake out there, I'll do my best to uh, put them to sleep. I, so I call myself a realist um, in, the, in the sense that the, the central view of realism is that balances of power tend to recur, right? So if you want the thumbnail sketch of realism, international politics is different than domestic politics because there exists a state of anarchy, if you will, in the sense that if two countries come to blows with each other, there's no 911 that you could call. Whereas if you come to blows with your neighbor, somebody calls 911 and the police come in the sense that there's a sort of hierarchy. You can take on the government if you'd like, but that's rarely a good idea to do uh, in a sort of martial way. And whereas in international politics, there's the United Nations and the WHO and the WTO, but they don't constitute a sort of 911 line that can come and adjudicate uh, disputes between states. So realism basically says that we live in an anarchic international system, that states seek to survive. That's another sort of a key assumption of realism that's pretty basic. And after that, it gets really messy. Uh, you, you have offensive realists that say maximizing your power is the best way to produce security. Um, you have defensive realists that stop short of that and say that, you know, at the point that you reach a balance of power, those can can hold without constantly seeking more power, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that the primacy view, and again, it was not a coincidence, I think that this really sprouted during a point where the realist story didn't have a lot to say, right? <laughs> because it was tempting to think that we had transcended anarchy, right? In the sense that we, we saw no one that could produce a balance of power against us, right? And there was a lot of realists groping around in the 1990s and the 2000s for something that looked like a balance of power. There was a term uh, uh, drawn up called soft balancing, where it was like normal diplomacy between, you know, sort of second tier powers should constitute balancing against the United States. But 
the, the reality was, you know, we were the only major power in the system, the only great power in the system. And so primacy basically held that we should try to transform the world to our liking. Um, and I still think that it, you know, that holds sway in Washington, that view that pretty much every major region of the world is of the utmost importance to the United States in terms of its national security is, is a very powerfully held view. So, you know, you have things like the, grotesque and barbarous civil war in Syria being explained to Americans as though not it's a sort of humanitarian consideration, but it's actually about our security. Um, you have, you know, disputes over uninhabited rocks between China and Japan being described as central to U.S. national security. And so I think there's almost like a solipsism that happens where anything in an international security sense that happens somehow redounds back to the United States. And if you take that view, you're going to have a really big military. You're going to have lots of alliances, lots of enemies. And not coincidentally, a goodly number of, you know, brush fire wars as we found ourselves in. It's interesting too, because we off, we hear the stories about what happens when people leave posts, say deputy secretary of state or some Pentagon post and they go into the nonprofit sector and they're going to go to Brookings or Heritage or CSIS. Uh, and you know, maybe their career military or career state department and they've risen through the ranks. Um, and you kind of mentioned this too with the culturation where if you're, that if you have the ability to rise through the ranks of the State Department or through the military, you probably are not against American primacy as a general rule. Um, and then you go out into Brookings, let's say, who just puts out a press release that says, we now have the deputy, former deputy secretary of state as, as though that that's how important we are. And you get this kind of revolving door where Brookings becomes important because of the title of the people that they hire who came out through, through the State Department and no one at any point is saying, well, maybe we shouldn't have primacy. Um, it kind of reminds me of, of stuff from John Mueller's book, uh, Chasing Ghosts, where, you know, if you, if there is an acculturation, if you've ever looked at like classified briefings of all of the threats against the United States that will make you never diminish the threats against the United States again. And so they just say, well, you don't know what it's like. And then they turn around and they go to the academics who probably didn't do that and say, you've never served. You've never seen classified briefings. Um, and so that's what gives them the, the leg up. Is there something to that kind of like revolving door view that goes on there? I just think it becomes – uh, these broader questions become background noise, right? So there's a, a, a prominent academic at Duke University, Peter Fever, um, who worked in the Bush administration and has, I think it's fair to say, a pretty hawkish bent, um, worked on the Iraq war, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and he is, is, you know, deeply immersed in the academic literature and debates about grand strategy, but sort of substantively agrees with the sort of beltway consensus, if you will. Um, and so to him, the idea that realism and restraint should be represented in Washington think tank world is like asking that there be a Marxist Leninist Washington thing, you know, sort of like this has been, this is a, an approach that has been tried and disproved and ha is littered with mounds of corpses, et cetera, et cetera. And it's sort of paradoxical from my point of view, because it's actually the primacists that are the Marxist Leninists in this model, where we've tried this approach for 20 years and it has led to just 
catastrophes from the Middle East. Um, you know, we have a, a terrible situation happening uh, in Venezuela in this hemisphere. And we've had a really sort of uh, just spendthrift model in Europe and East Asia where, uh, you know, again, to, to crib from my old colleague, Ben Friedman, you know, we agree to de- defend a number of countries and they agree to let us. And that's just not a sort of uh, a, a good deal for the United States. And I think, you know, the the crude, boorish, Trumpian version of this, um, I think you're going to hear um, sort of liberal internationalists and primacists in D.C. try to say to realist, realists and restrainers, you know, Trump was your guy and, and, and he's gone now. So you're not going to, you know, you're not going to... Uh, to come to the fore again. And I just think, you know, the fact that that man settled on a particular sentence at any given time is not indicative of the, the veracity or, or use of those views uh, broadly. So I do think that there's just a sense in which, or I'll give you another example, Stephen Krasner, who's a prominent academic, and I believe it's Stanford and also worked in the state department of uh, George W. Bush said that, you know, a lot of questions that academics look at aren't relevant to policymakers because they examine factors that policymakers can't manipulate. And that's an interesting view in the sense that, in my view, there are all sorts of things that policymakers can't manipulate that are important, right? Like, not everything is manipulable by the State Department or the intelligence community or what have you, right? If you want to use the metaphor of, you know, uh, uh, engineering and architecture, right? There are all sorts of things. You can't manipulate gravity. You can't manipulate physics, et cetera, et cetera. And you want people who are sort of steeped in those non-manipulable factors uh, to build your buildings and bridges and things of that nature. So there's this weird bias to activism where you have someone saying it's not relevant to policy if it can't be manipulated. Well, sometimes things that can't be manipulated are immensely relevant to policy and would suggest that, you know, if it's something bad that can't be manipulated, maybe stay away from it. I'm going to quickly pick up on something that Trevor mentioned in passing, which was he he said, you know, there might be this, oh, you don't know what I know because you didn't have access to the classified reports. And I've wondered about this from the field of foreign policy research because if you're doing, you know, you're one of our colleagues at Cato who does Medicare policy or housing policy, you can gather all the data and you can process it and nobody's trying to hide it really. And so you have access to it. But with a lot of foreign policy, it seems like a lot of what's going on is closed off to think tankers and academics and the general public because it's classified potentially for good reasons. And so how do you go about doing high-quality analysis and ultimately giving good and meaningful advice if you're in a field where a lot of the relevant information is kept secret from you? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, So the first sort of broad analytical question that I would have is that, you know, when information about dangers comes to you from people who are charged with protecting you from those dangers, would you expect a bias in one direction or the other, right? So if information about crime comes to you from the police and prosecutors, they're going to give you a picture that's different than an academic, you know, assembling data might. And we really don't have many independent sources of information about dangers 
uh, other than leaks, right? Which is, you know, those people have their own particular uh, access to grind in many cases. So it is true, right? And, and, and it's fair to say, you know, we had these debates in, in the 2000s, you know, how can you know that this is true uh, or not? And I think you could look at history and see that, you know, people who want to engage in activist policies and have the goods, right, can, can sort of show you um, that there's a danger there. We'll find a way to do it. Um, there was a famous example where I can't remember the particular fact that Vice President Cheney was trying to air, uh, whether that was the meeting in Prague with Mohammed Atta, I think it was, but it was classified. So someone leaked it to Judy Miller at the New York Times on Friday or Saturday, and then he went on Meet the Press on Sunday and cited the leaked piece of information <laughs> that had been published in the New York Times. He didn't leak it himself, of course. He just cited the leak that showed up in the New York Times. So I think we should ask for more information, right? It's not the case that everything, every piece of information that justifies action is wrong, right? It's, 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 there, there's not everything that has been done in the global war on terror, I oppose, right? Like there have been, uh, drone strikes and soft raids. I mean, they picked up bin Laden. So it's hard to sort of go piece by piece and say this raid, yes, this raid, no, until after the fact. So it is hard on a, on a sort of granular level to green light, yellow light or red light, uh, any particular operation. But in the broad sense of threat assessment and how uh, grave the dangers we face internationally are, um, we can look at history. We can look at, you know, again, the information provided to us by people who are charged with protecting us about how tough it is to protect us um, and draw some inferences about tendencies and biases. So I think on, on bigger, broader questions, you can get inferences from broader data that are easier to discern. But, you know, should we do this or that raid in Western Pakistan is, is a question I frequently don't weigh in on because of that, because I'm not privy to the particular intel. And, you know, having a blanket policy of yes or no uh, is just sort of foolhardy. How much does public opinion play or what role does public opinion play in this? It seems to me that Americans – might, might generally enjoy the fact that we the, – the American primacy is some sort of almost arrogant aspect. But also Iraq and Afghanistan haven't really been PR successes, in, at least now, you know, maybe 15 years ago. But And Trump to some extent said, I'm not going to do any wars and uh, it seemed to give him some popularity. Uh it's also fascinating to me that the popularity of war for Americans seems to be very related to whether or not they know anyone who died in it, uh, which as we fight more and more wars with robots from the sky, you're going to be less likely to have a neighbor kid that you know who died in the war. Um, so it kind of seems like American foreign policy opinion, public opinion is, is a jumble, but it, it definitely isn't all for fighting wars and primacy all the time. No, it's definitely not. And, you know, our other colleague, Trevor Thrall, pointed out that, you know, and this seems for those of us who are old enough to remember uh, the era after September 11th and before the Iraq war, it was a crazy time, right? Radio stations were banning uh, Cities in Dust by Susie and the Banshees because we were all snowflakes, if you'll forgive the term, uh, so much that we couldn't afford to hear that. Or REMs, it's the end of the world as we know it. It was a crazy time um, in American society. And yet, 
Public opinion did not crest 50% supporting the Iraq war until I think it was February of 2003. And the Bush administration began running a campaign in uh, September in earnest of 2002. So I agree with you that it's not the case that American foreign policy or American public opinion rather is just always and everywhere in favor of war and expansion. The message that I would give broadly, and I think this is supported pretty well by the public opinion literature that we have, is that public opinion follows elite opinion. It doesn't generate it. Um, so partisan Republicans and partisan Democrats take what are called cues from elites in their parties, and they believe what the elites tell them to believe. And, and a, a source of evidence of this, a couple sources of evidence of this, is that Republicans in the span of a decade can go from thinking that Dick Cheney is a sort of a hero and putting him, you know, I mean, in this sort of, if you think about these silly Trump portraits of him with an eagle on his shoulder and a big flag behind his back, that was Dick Cheney less than 10 years before it was Donald Trump. And the rhetoric, although unfortunately not the policies as much as I might like, of Trump versus Cheney were pretty fundamentally different, right? Donald Trump was saying no to forever wars and, you know, NATO is, a, you know, we're being taken for Uncle Sucker here, et cetera, et cetera. And Dick Cheney was, you know, the 1% doctrine. And we need to go out there and kill bad guys. They're everywhere uh, and onward and onward. And I think that, you know, Republicans <laughs> didn't pay a lot of attention independently adjudicating the claims of respectively either Bush and Cheney or Trump. They just sort of, I'm a Republican. This is the sort of thing that Republicans say. And that's sort of constrained, right? Like it would be really weird if if Republicans became earnest liberal internationalists all of a sudden. There is a sort of pugilistic, nationalistic, uh, America first essence that permeates Republican thought, no matter the substance of it. But that's a long-winded way of saying that Public opinion will follow elite opinion. And one of the things that, you know, drives me crazy about the foreign policy discussion is that people who want to do or not do X will point at a poll and say, we have to do or not do X because it's what the public wants. Foreign policy is rarely salient in presidential elections to say nothing of Senate or congressional elections. Um, and policymakers can and should do what they think is right. Um, and explain it to their constituents in terms that are conducive to them. So you will have uh, Democrats making more gestures in international institutions and in cooperation with allies and Republicans doing a little bit more chest pounding, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but this genuflection of public opinion is just something that drives me nuts because you can shade things to make it look like the public wants or doesn't want basically anything. And policymakers have a wide purview and should maximize that. And, you know, I, you know, I may be eating these words three years from now when uh, policymakers clearly violate public opinion on something I think the public is right about. No president certainly should be uh, uh, cowed by fear of public opinion. There's really a lot of room to run on foreign policy and uh, presidents should avail themselves of that. Think tanks, like the Cato Institute, but every think tank in Washington is able to do its job because it talks donors into giving it money to pay salaries and cover its expenses and so on. And it's pretty common, I think, for people to believe that basically all of us in the think tank world are pay for play, that you know we sit there in our offices and we wait for a donor to call us and tell us a check's on the way if you will say the following thing, and then that's what we say. And 
that's of course not true and most of us you know wouldn't wouldn't do that even if we were you know asked uh, but there is there is a sense in which you know donors give money to organizations that are expressing views that they agree with because most of us wouldn't hand over large sums of money to someone who's saying things that we totally disagree with. So there is an alignment between what a think tank is saying and and donor interests or opinions. And in light of that, why are so many think tanks in Washington with a foreign policy focus or a foreign policy department not more realist or anti-war? Because if if the donor class in America is largely wealthier people with investments, businesses, and so on. It would seem like those are the kinds of people who don't, unless they're in, you know, the defense industry, don't really benefit from the United States being involved in conflagrations overseas. But think tanks seem to be, as you said, Brookings and AEI and all these people are more pro-war than we might expect if donors were donating in their own interest. Yeah, I think it's it's true that um, there aren't great benefits that redound to wealthy individuals from lots of the things that we do overseas. But um, in many senses, there aren't great costs either. You know, the United States has had the luxury of deficit spending uh, and debt to take on to finance our wars overseas. So it's not the case that a dollar for war overseas means a dollar in tax increases. So we've been able to disguise the costs of our wars. Many of those costs are going to be deferred years or even decades into the future for healthcare, for uh, soldiers, uh, service members who are injured overseas. Um, and so it's hard to see the costs. So I think, you know, and this pains me as somebody who's deeply interested in foreign policy and thinks that foreign policy is important in a lot of ways. Um, it's rational in some cases for people to care about things that affect them more. And I would say that, you know, one example to take this out of the, again, sort of crude Marxist uh, story is that people do care deeply about abortion and people do care deeply about the environment. It tells them that they're a certain sort of person, that there are certain values. They want to be part of a country that is a certain way in essence. And I think that is an aspect that, you know, we at Cato have really tried to do to say, look, there is this small R Republican tradition of foreign policy that is a great heritage uh, in this country that has been forgotten, that needs to be revived, that emphasize geography is important for international politics, that we really do have this luxury, whether we want to call it the new Zion or whatever, um, of being insulated from the intrigues that permeated European politics through the latter half of the second millennium. And, and, and this is something that should be utilized for liberty, right? That, that, it, that it gave us the opportunity to opt out of a lot of those great power politics um, and to sort of revive this idea that there is an American foreign policy tradition that is good and worthy and confers benefits on us that we should revive. And again, to point to the more uh, mercenary, if you will, justifications in the sense of all these costs that are coming down the road, the dead kids that you may not know, but that paid taxes to the same government that we all do, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it is true that it is rational in some cases to ignore this stuff because the costs are deferred and there hasn't been this sort of 
reified identity centered around the issue like there has been with abortion or the environment or what have you. When it comes to academia, you, you mentioned a couple of times that the debate is different there. Um, would, would you describe it as kind of uniformly dovish? Is there a consensus in academia about American foreign policy to some extent uh, that would kind of mirror or be inverse to the, to the blob in Washington? It's not it, – it is more dovish than the Washington debate is. Um, and I think it is less because of its detachment from the day-to-day pull and haul of politics. It's a little bit broader and a little bit deeper. Um, so William Woolforth, who I mentioned before, who I admire tremendously as a scholar, although I disagree with him vehemently on uh, American strategy, uh, pointed out in one of his articles – defending this sort of status quo primacy approach that most scholars in the academy who write about American strategy favor something along the lines of, if you want to call it realism and restraint, I forget the particular term that he used. But I guess I would say that the the, the broad structure of views that you'll hear out of the Cato foreign policy, defense policy department have much more cachet in the academy than they do in Washington. Now, what to make of that, I don't know. But I think it's also a debate that welcomes dissent, right? So it, it's not the case that sort of uh, – so I did grad school at the University of Chicago. John Mearsheimer is there. John has his particular set of views on the Middle East and on China, et cetera, et cetera. When he would invite someone to, you know, a professor from another university to give a talk, he never invited people that agreed with him. <laughs> he always invited people who disagreed because what's the point of debate? How do you discover anything that's true that you don't already know by talking to people who think the same thing that you do? And it's certainly true of people like Woolforth at Dartmouth and, and elsewhere that there's a much more collegial, um, sharp at times, um, but and, and, and it may just be that the stakes are lower, right? We can talk about academic politics in that sense. Um, but I found it much more edifying because it wasn't the case, you know, the, the, the people that I disagreed with would engage seriously with the views um, um, that I or whoever advanced. And so it was more rollicking. I think it was more conducive to realism and restraint, although I don't think that view is monolithic by any stretch. If anything, I think probably some flavor of liberal internationalism, less hawkish than the sort of Beltway establishment, is probably the prevailing view in the academy. Back when I was taking the Metro into the Cato office, and hopefully when I get to start doing it again, I would go through Crystal City, which is in Virginia, just across the river from DC, and you'd pass these big buildings with defense contractor names emblazoned across the top of them. What role do defense contractors play in driving or influencing this debate? I mean, again, I think it's 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 not determinative, but it matters, right? Um, it's not the case that the United States starts over new every budget season and says, "What do we need to defend ourselves from the dangers of the world?" Um, and part of that is that you know to design a new you know a sixth generation fighter airplane, uh, or to decide you know what to do about Chinese carrier killer uh, missiles takes time. It takes more than a budget cycle. And so, you know, to defend uh, defense contractors here, you know, the job that they do is hard. It does take time. Um, but I do think that, look, if you think of it in terms where 
there aren't trade-offs between defense programs, right? So you may have two contractors or three contractors vying for a particular contract, then they win that contract. It's sort of a done deal at that point in the sense that, you know, they have the the golden egg and, and that's the end of it. I think if you had um, people who think that naval competition with China is very important, vying with people who think that, uh, you know, uh, sea lines of communication coming out of the Middle East are more important. And that debate, to get to your question previously about um, information that's provided about these things, many people who work on China can tell you better than I could about why this whole Middle East business is very stupid and destructive, but they won't unless they have to, right? There's a sort of log-rolled coalition in the Pentagon where if everyone's slice of the pie gets bigger, there's not very much fighting about whose slice got relatively bigger than whose uh, other slice. And I think that when we get information, and we do from time to time, um, from people in the defense establishment about what's wrong with other players in the defense establishment, that's very useful. But I think in terms of the the debate in D.C., it certainly is the case that um, contractors, uh, both you know, defense programs and sort of consultancies, et cetera, et cetera, do pour a lot of money into Washington. Um, and again, I don't think it's the case that you know they walk into Think Tank X and say, here's a check for $700,000. Can you give me a report that says my program is really important? They're smart. They know, <laughs> they know which think tanks have particular sorts of views. And, you know, if it's a think tank that's been writing very, uh, uh, favorably about, uh, uh, a particular, uh, FAD missile defense system or the F-35 or what have you, they'll come and drop $700,000 on that think tank and say, can you give us a report on the F-35 knowing in general terms what that report is going to look like? And, you know, I, I want to be clear. It's it's not clear. I'm not trying to say there's necessarily anything wrong with this, but knowing that this is going on would help us to understand some of the gaps in the debate in Washington and why we hear certain views and we don't hear contrary views. Um, so it's it's you know I want to be clear that it's not the case that money determines answers, but in some cases it does determine questions that get asked, um, and 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 more to the point, questions that don't get asked. It seems that in the last two years in particular, China has taken a, at least here in the, in the Western world, a reputation hit for w- the kind of moves it's been making, whether it's with the Uyghurs or moves against its own citizens to create a social uh, network or a, a social accountability system, moves against its uh, citizens to kind of clamp down on the movie industry, moves against the NBA, all this stuff has China moving for something that would be like primacy. Um, and if we look at Xi Jinping's writings, actually, that's especially what he says. He wants China to be the global hegemon by 2049, which will be the 100th anniversary of the Communist Party. In the face of that, uh, do we see even more incentives now that America has sort of we have a new big superpower to contend with like we did with the Soviet Union, that primacy will just be – is going to be even more entrenched as the necessary component of American foreign policy basically because everyone will say, but China. Like on anything that you say, they'll say, what about China? But China. China's going to move against the South China Sea. China's going to move against Taiwan. What is America going to do? Our only choice is primacy. Do you, I mean that kind of seems to me like 
what's going to happen in the next two decades? I think it's a real danger. Um, I mean, I think, you know, if you look back just 50 years ago, um, the United States convinced itself that a civil war in Southeast Asia was actually about competition between the United States and the Soviet Union uh, and spent an ungodly amount of money, 58,000 American lives, countless lives of people in Vietnam, Cambodia, especially in Laos, um, for nothing. Nothing was won in that conflict. Um, and I think you do just to sort of look at the, the uh, delineations of the views on China and the rest of the world. You're beginning to hear two separate views. One, and I think this is a little bit of an older view, is somewhat quietly sympathetic to my views about withdrawing from the Middle East that says this is a sideshow. Um, there's, it's, it's just a money pit that we keep pouring diplomatic attention, money, arms, men, women, uh, into to no good end. And you're, but you're beginning to hear the Vietnam type arguments that we can't leave the Middle East to China or else they'll scoop up all the great prizes we've won ourselves there over the last 20 years to which I say there, nothing better could happen. Couldn't happen to a nicer group of guys than the Chinese, uh, for them to sort of pick up the Middle East project and run with it. Um, John Mearsheimer has a funny riff about people freaking out when the Soviets invaded Afghanistan. What are we going to do about it? And John said, this is the greatest thing that could happen. <laughs> Why let, let them jump in there. And lo and behold, uh, you know, not 10 years later, you know, you have the sort of Soviet Union disintegrating. So I think. One thing that people should watch is the extent to which this debate happens, number one, and who appears to be winning. I, you know, give sucker to the side that says we need to divest ourselves of these ridiculous enterprises in a region that constitutes, you know, between three and five percent of world population and three and five percent of world GDP. You can do the oil argument, et cetera, et cetera. This is a sideshow. It's a waste of time. Then I worry if we win that discussion, what the China people will do with the winnings from <laughs> divesting there. But I think you're within the China hawk community, you're really starting to hear two separate views. One, which says we can't leave the Middle East to China. They'll, you know, again, take all of our winnings there. And the other that says this is good money after bad. It's a complete waste. Uh, it's small, weak countries without offensive military capability. Oil can't be used as a weapon as you think it does. Just stop and give us the money so that we can, you know, get in China's face. But that debate is going to be one to watch over the years and decades to come. Trump gestured in the direction of being anti-war during his campaign and and still kind of talked that way during his presidency, but in actual practice was not even remotely anti-war. Biden has already begun bombing people just a little over a month into his presidency. Do you think that we'll ever get a truly anti-war president? You can't ask me that question if it's going to be the last one. Um, it's tough to say. I mean, um, so the, the, my my somewhat Trumpy friends um, will say, "Look, you know, uh, uh, Trump is a is a historic president. He didn't start any new wars." Um, there were a couple scares there that uh, uh, had been in the news lately. Um, but, uh, you know, he withdrew some troops from Afghanistan. And I say, well, look, Obama took uh, U.S. troops in Iraq from, I forget what it was, 150,000 down to like five. You know, he withdrew more troops. Yes, he did the Libya war, which was just completely 
ideological flight of fancy, but it didn't cost the United States that much. So you get into these sort of interpretive hair-splitting endeavors. I think that as constraints continue to tighten around the United States, both domestically and internationally, it should, and I'll find some wood to knock on here, um, focus the mind a little bit about what we want to spend on. And again, those domestic constraints, um, I think, are going to be the biggest challenge in the sense that you know, if we stop being able to print what seems to be an infinite amount of money for an infinite amount of time, guns versus butter is going to become a real discussion. And if Chinese growth continues, which is an open question, um, Chinese defense budgets are going to continue. Chinese technological advances are going to continue. And the question is going to be, can we do everything at the same time that we try to counter Chinese advances? Um, and so I suspect that if we do get a bona fide, genuinely anti-war president, and maybe this says something about us as a people, um, it will be by necessity rather than by virtue and pers of persuasion. Um, because, you know, we... At, at, in an environment in which we can do what seems like anything we want, you can do a lot of, of, of things that you don't need to do. And I think in an environment where a dollar spent on one thing is a dollar not spent on something else, um, it forces a little bit of harder thinking than we've engaged in over the past two decades. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.